0: Hey Baldwin, you know, I was thinking about how I love talking about Asian things. Do you also yearn for a community to be able to do that?
1: You know, I don't, I'm not in a community that has that content available, but there is a solution for that and that's the universal Asian.
0: What kind of content do they have there?
1: So they got a whole bunch of things, but it's a magazine style uh, publication that has written articles, they got poetry, prose photos, art, and even some videos about Asian American culture or just Asian culture.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So where do I find out about this community?
1: You can actually go to theuniversalasian.com and you could visit and subscribe to them. And do you actually have Instagram?
0: <laughs> I do.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you could actually follow them at the Universal Asian. Look them up right now and join the Universal Asian community today.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: what's up everyone i'm happy to feature an episode from the show soundtrack your life it's a podcast hosted by ryan pack where he invites a guest to talk about their favorite soundtrack from a movie tv show or musical so i had the pleasure of being on ryan's show where we talked about the black panther album produced by kendrick lamar love that conversation also love that album Go check it out now. Uh, love the concept of the show because it focuses on the intersectionality of film and music. So today, we're sharing the Life Aquatic with Steve Zisu, the Wes Anderson film. A film that received mixed reviews when it initially came out, but the soundtrack received pretty good praise. Enjoy. Soundtrack your life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pat.
2: Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, the podcast where we talk about soundtracks and our personal connections to them. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, or if you've been with us from the beginning, thank you for your support. Um, Subscribe to the podcast, leave a review um, if you'd like. We'd really appreciate it. Today we're going to talk about the 2004 Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. My guest today is my good friend and advertising copywriter, Nicole Barlow. Welcome to the show, Nicole.
0: Hi, Ryan. I ah, feel so privileged to be here today. Thank you for getting the entire long form title of the movie in that intro. <laughs> did
2: I pro- did I pronounce the zisu? Is it Zisu or zisu? I
0: think it's zisu. Is it zisu?
2: I'm trying to think
0: I think it's zisu, but I think the bigger problem that we're going to have is agreeing on how you pronounce Sue George. I think it's so, George, like you sew a button. So we have to agree on that up front.
2: Yeah, let's uh, let's go So George.
0: Go So George. I'm
2: much I'm much more comfortable saying So George versus Sea George. Nailed it. So, um says Nicole, why are we talking about The Life Aquatic today?
0: So, The Life Aquatic is one of those movies that came out in my early 20s. It's 2004. It's the young days of the internet, right? Um, it's during this like height of I'm super into David Bowie I'm super into Iggy Pop and the Stooges and all of this feels like a revelation it feels like uncovering something that I was always there because everybody knew Bowie in the 80s right like what was your first impression of David Bowie
2: it's kind of hard to pinpoint um, because I think there's a like, I think I was familiar with David Bowie songs before I realized they were David Bowie songs. Mm-hmm. Like, when I heard um, Modern Love, you know, I feel like I've known that song, like, my entire life. But it wasn't until, like, somewhere in, like, the late 90s where I was like, oh, that's a David Bowie song?
0: Right, same. So, like, I feel like I've known that song. I've known Let's Dance my whole entire life, right? But you kind of relegate it to that part of your brain. Like, I was little, I listened to it on like top 40 radio, it's kind of like corny pop music. But what you don't know is that there's this whole entire like Pandora's box of like insane Bowie music to listen to, right? That predates all of that. Like, I didn't know anything about Bowie in terms of his like career trajectory until like the early 2000s let's just put it that way so this movie felt like it came from some kind of weird dream like did I conjure this movie did I make this happen is this really all like Bowie songs on the soundtrack and these like beautiful covers like it just really hit me in a way that like other Wes Anderson movies still don't even hit me like this is the one where I feel nostalgia for it like I can still remember like trying to thrift with like my now husband to put together that entire life aquatic outfit, like painting like Adidas shoes that <laughs> they would look like the shoes from the movie, <laughs> which is like, I'm not a hype beast, but that's the one thing where I'm like, can they just release that shoe? I don't think they've ever released that shoe.
2: Yeah. I don't think they have.
0: Maybe in like some super limited run and somebody's got it in like a glass case next to like, i don't know their t-rex skull that they bought at Christie's. i bet they're like ten thousand dollars they're like the, they're like the shoes that marty mcfly wears that they released like one time
2: yeah if they did release it it must have been like a super super limited run that would have that would make supreme blush you know
0: (laughs) right no exactly Somebody has them, but I don't have them. But I remember, like, coveting the wardrobe. I remember just, like, being so entranced by the soundtrack and by this world. And this movie was everything to me in 2004. Like, it was it was huge to me. And it's still something that I go back to. And it's been kind of like this, you know, weird thread since it came out.
2: So, I'm, so I bought the soundtrack when the movie came out. I was a huge Wes Anderson fan. And I just kind of revisited it over the past few days since we were going to talk about it. And I forgot that the So George songs on the soundtrack are lifted straight from the set. Like you can hear Wes Anderson say action.
0: Right. They're like really like kind of lo fi and crunchy. Right. So it's not, it like, it really does uh behoove you to see the movie. Like if you have nostalgia for the movie, then you are going to keep going back to those tracks. It's really kind of like essential that you don't do one thing and not the other (laughs) like he's kind of the uh whatever the greek chorus in the movie right like isn't that kind of how you would describe like the so george appearance he's kind of the one that narrates it unofficially
2: yeah he's kind of the narrator he's kind of this omnipresent sort of um i don't know it's one of those things where he's always there
0: He's always there. It'll pan to him and he's like perched on like a lighthouse or like in a crow's nest or something. So you never really know like where he's going to crop up like randomly with like the acoustic guitar, which is always kind of like comical, but then also (laughs) like really magical because you get these like unexpected cover versions of these really iconic Bowie songs which is crazy. And I think at the time it was really innovative. I think now it's like, oh, cool. It's a cover version of an iconic song that, you know, great. But like back then I feel like that wasn't really like a commonly used thing. It wasn't so cliche, right? Like, didn't that feel kind of new in 2004?
2: I think it was new because it was him singing David Bowie songs in basically a different style of music Um, singing it in his native language and not trying to sing it in English. I think a lot of what he did with it is just so different than what we're accustomed to. Like, I think there were a lot of like, you know, coffee shop versions of songs maybe in 2004, but I don't think they're, you know, they're kind of like bossa Nova ish kind of renditions, even though it's just him and a guitar. It's not, it's not a coffee shop cover. It's, it's got a lot more complexity and nuance
0: yeah I mean that's the thing it's not that dreaded like coffee shop cover right which I think everybody kind of maybe it's just me but I kind of like despise a coffee house cover (laughs) like let's just slow down the tempo and make it like background music right like no like these really like reinvent the songs in this way that feels like both tangible and intangible at the same time because they're sung in Portuguese and I think probably half of the lyrics are just kind of made up Because they don't translate, right? Uh, And I remember reading this thing at the time that, like, so George didn't actually know any of the songs that Wes Anderson wanted him to play. So, like, he came to the set and he's, uh, well, I know Let's Dance because pop is, you know, big in in Brazil. And I know that, but I don't know anything from Ziggy Stardust. I don't know this song from Monkey Tory. So he had to kind of, like, teach himself all these songs, like, on the fly. And I think it's cool that he was able to bring something like not only new to it, but it, I think maybe because he came to it without any kind of preconceptions, they really feel fresh, like something different.
2: Yeah, I believe when uh, he performed these songs live, he told that story and then added, you know, cuz I'm a black man. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the song that all that that's the David Bowie song that all black people know.
0: <laughs> right, his Nile Rodgers.
2: I mean, I know this is an uncool thing to bring up, but also you know, Puff Daddy sampled it in the mid-90s.
0: Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. No, I was just saying that like that, you're right. Like there's something like really enduring about like that song in particular, and it was like so huge and so global. Like, of course, of course everybody knows that. Yeah, I remember so I think you and I I don't know if you and I were both at this concert, so I'm going to ask. But do you remember seeing So George at the Ace Hotel in like 2016? It was the same year that Bowie died, and it was the tribute to Bowie where he like did all of the songs from the movie plus some 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 more. Did I cry no. a lot? Or were you there? No.
2: I I was not at that show.
0: You think you were at? We were both at the Hollywood Bowl show where he performed Bowie yes. songs, which might have been like the with next an summer. orchestra. Yeah, with the orchestra, which was emotional. It was emotional.
2: Well, especially because he told the story about how his dad passed away shortly after David Bowie. And then and then the kicker, he ends it with, so I guess they're both on Mars now.
0: I didn't even remember that part. I think I blocked that out.
2: And then like the 18,000 people were crying. <laughs>
0: I really miss crying with thousands of people like in an arena. I don't like crying alone. I much prefer like thousands of people all crying at the same time. It was much better.
2: I don't know. I've met people on uh, Twitter that like to cry alone at third eye blind concerts.
0: <laughs> I think you should cry in some form if you're at a third eye blind concert. I'm sorry. Apologies to the third eye blind fans. They're great. They had their merit, but yeah, like I, I, it's just all of these songs, right? Like they hit so hard, and you keep coming back to them. And I know that I've kept coming back to them, like especially since like Bowie passed, right? Because it it feels like this continuation of that legacy. There's something really special about those songs on this movie, and I, I feel like it's maybe the most like cohesive Wes Anderson soundtrack in that way because it's got this like this element this Bowie element threaded everywhere.
2: Right. Like the movie ends with queen bitch as well. Like the big kind of, kind of traditional Wes Anderson ending with, you know, the cast all kind of walking down. Like it's almost like a, like the end of a musical, you know, they're all kind of, kind of getting their curtain call. Um, it's, you know, in so that scene is cut to queen bitch by David Bowie, the original version um. So yeah, it's def- there's a there's a mix of David Bowie's originals and the so George and the So George covers as well.
0: So George, we agreed on this. So George,
2: yeah. So George covers.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that cl- that scene, that ending scene, is just uh, it's just Chef's kiss. Because I know, like at at points before that, I think you get to hear. David Bowie's version of Life on Mars at some point in the movie or way earlier in the movie but you don't really get this like full-throated like takeover rendition from Bowie until that ending scene which is really cool and I don't know like Hunky Dory that song comes from um from Hunky Dory which is an album that's kind of like a tribute to like it's like Bowie's vision of America like the new world right because it's all like stuff about New York and stuff about Andy Warhol and it just feels like such a nice way to end it right because kind of like looking towards like a future which is cool and it's just a badass song this song is amazing
2: yeah it's one of my favorites for sure
0: it's just such a such a great song and again like going back to Bowie being kind of like the thread through this whole movie is like yeah obviously there's a lot of covers but you even get to hear like Scott Walker. You get to hear Thirtieth Century Man and Scott Walker was like this huge influence on Bowie, so that's there. Devo is there, and Bowie produced the We Are't Men album, right? So it's like Bowie is kind of like subtly creeping into all of the shit on this soundtrack,
2: yeah, and I just wanted to add that David Bowie spoke very positively of hearing the So George versions of his songs,
0: right, which is like the ultimate praise right because there's plenty of Bowie covers and I I'm sure that he does not like give out that kind of he didn't give out that kind of thing lightly I kind of feel like there are two people that are allowed to cover Bowie songs and I feel like it's it's so George and it's Trent Reznor right um because Trent Reznor was such a like an actual collaborator with Bowie I feel like he's allowed to cover Bowie song I don't know I don't not to like be like it's so sacred you could never, but Cover songs are weird, right? Like you have to do them well or bring something new to them.
2: Or if you're Kurt Cobain.
0: Oh yeah, that's yeah. I guess if you're Kurt Cobain, I know some people probably prefer like the man who sold the world Kurt version, right? Or heard it first.
2: Yeah, I think I classic. I heard that version first.
0: Yeah, I probably did too. And I, I didn't even think of that. That like, yeah. But again, that's kind of the way that like Bowie kind of seeps into your life. Like you were saying, like, I feel like I've kind of known his songs since I can remember. And it's true. And you have because there's so much shit that he's been um, involved in in some way, which I think it like really makes him such a giant. Not that you need to like talk about how rad Bowie is, right? But I think um, when you start to unravel it, you realize like how much stuff that you love has Bowie in it in some way like yeah, raw like, power, right? Like there's um there's search and destroy is in this movie, right? And search and destroy is in that part where um where Bill Murray goes like ham on all the sea pirates. Yeah. Um which is like such a great scene and it's like that song is so perfect for it cuz it literally is like that's his raw power moment. Like that's when he comes like completely unhinged and I think if you're going to if you're going to soundtrack a part of a movie where somebody's unhinged like search and destroy obviously like that would be that would be the choice
2: that song is so legendary like there's even a chili peppers version of that cover of that song and that's and even that cover sounds great
0: yeah i feel like that's one of those songs is like as long as you um kind of preserve some of the original integrity there's no way to make that bad it's just like it just comes right out the gate it's just such a just
2: don't just don't coffee house it
0: House it. Don't don't acoustic guitar it. Maybe. Although now I kind of want somebody to do that. Well,
2: if it's so George, then then I might be okay with it.
0: <laughs> he's allowed. He's allowed. Yeah. Um, I really love that moment though, and like again, you know, like I feel like Iggy Pop is kind of like David Bowie's id, right? Because like for all of the crazy shit that Bowie did, like at the end of the day, he's still kind of this like poised English gentleman and I feel like their relationship always had this kind of like duality to it. Right. Where he would like look at Iggy and Iggy was like doing all the stuff that like he couldn't do, <laughs> like slicing himself up on stage and like just going completely insane to electric guitar. And that's kind of like why he loved him so much. I think like respected him so much because he was doing all that stuff that like he loved, but maybe couldn't quite pull off.
2: Yeah. That's an interesting take. I can see that for sure.
0: I don't know. That that's, That's kind of hard. Did you ever get a chance to see Iggy Pop Live? Have you ever seen Iggy Pop Live?
2: I almost saw the Stooges, but I would have had to miss the replacements reunion at a festival to see the Stooges because they were playing at the same time.
0: Oh, so that, yeah, definitely wouldn't have been your choice.
2: Yeah, like I could have caught 20 minutes of the Stooges and then I would have had to run back to go see the replacements and that's not very fair to seeing the Stooges.
0: That's true Wow that is a real Sophie's choice. I had no idea that you had to make that choice. that sucks.
2: And I think Mike Watt was playing with the Stooges and i I love Mike Watt Yeah and I would I would love to see him playing with them.
0: Who put together that lineup That's unfair to put those two bands on at the same time. I, I've gotten to see Iggy Pop twice um the first time that I saw Iggy Pop was in 2003. And it was at a festival. It was at um, one of the All Tomorrow's Parties festivals. And it was in Long Beach at the Queen Mary. Um, oh, cool. It was So it was super cool, right? Like, super cool. At this point, like, I'm super into Iggy Pop. I'm super into the Stooges. But my expectations are kind of low because I'm pretty sure Iggy was in his mid-60s which is hard to believe because this was a long ass time ago. Like 2003 is not recent, but he was an old guy. Like he was not young. So he's in his sixties and I'm thinking like, okay, well, it's probably going to be mellow, like just temper your expectations. Right. Um, no, it was not like this 2003 set with like the reformed, like surviving members of the Stooges and him, uh, was one of the craziest things I've ever been to. And as you know, I've been to like a shit ton of concerts all kinds of concerts. So I'm not saying this lightly. It's not like I've been to like five shows. Like it was dangerous. Um, Like 70s dangerous. Like somebody pulled a knife and got like slammed into the barrier. Some girl behind me was like, high as a kite on like coke, like let's dance, like totally like slam dancing into me for like the entire show and like holding my shoulders. And the pit is just like going crazy. Like, It was really like, kind of dangerous. And I had no idea that this dude could actually like incite all of that emotion. And also just be like, just move like a rubber band. And he's like 67. It was wild.
2: You have bad experiences with other women at shows.
0: I don't know what it is. Why is this?
2: Yeah, we re- remember your good friend Mindy that you met at the replacement show who just drove you through the crowd and none of us knew where you went?
0: I mean, Mindy was nice, and in her defense, she did get me to the front, so.
2: <laughs> your husband had the best response to everything. You know, so I'm like, oh, no, where's Nicole? Like, Nicole's gone. We got to find Nicole. And and Brad just goes, she'll be back.
0: <laughs> wow. What a, what a Han Solo type response. I mean, I did come back eventually. We saw right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Brad, my the aforementioned husband, right? Like he was with me at the second time that we saw Iggy Pop. Um, and this was like 2016. So Iggy Pop is much older at this point, like even older, if you can imagine that. Uh, and again, it was just one of those shows that was like, it was basically like a riot, <laughs> like, It basically just uh, erupted into, like, a giant mosh pit riot of craziness. He made the mistake of going to the front at that show, and um, he fucked up a really nice Beck poster that he'd bought, like, 10 minutes before. (laughs) But the point of this is, is that, like, Iggy Pop really brings it um, still, like, to this day. Um, There is something just irrepressible about that dude. So... Yeah, two of like the most memorable concert experiences I've had are are both him just doing all his old shit. Recommended. See him when he's like 92. I'm sure it's going to (laughs) be it'll be just as good.
2: It's 2020. So see him next chance you have, because who knows how much longer we're all going to be here.
0: (laughs) Who knows when concerts will be reinstated. So, you know, something to look forward to Iggy Pop, like in a wheelchair.
2: Oh, don't say that.
0: That's true. He No, no, I don't think we'll ever see that. He's no,
2: he would just get up from the wheelchair and throw it into the crowd.
0: <laughs> he would do like a Willy Wonka, right? Where he'd like come out on a cane, but then like roll and stage dive.
2: Right. Without a shirt on.
0: Without a shirt, clearly without a shirt on, with no clothes.
2: Like, does he know how to wear a shirt?
0: No, because he lives in Florida. He lives like in the Keys. And so... I think he intentionally moves somewhere where you have to wear the least amount of clothes possible. Let's talk about Devo. What, I mean, this is another one where it's like, I mean, how do you feel about Devo? We've been going to concerts together for a really long time. I feel like um, we've never discussed Devo in all these years.
2: I like Devo. I have, I have the blue hat. I don't have the red whippet hat. I have the new school blue hat.
0: It's very nice.
2: Yeah, so like I wouldn't call myself like a hardcore Devo fan, but like well, let, let's let's start. Let's start with Mark Mothersbaugh. So yeah. Mark Mothersbaugh scored the film. He's a member of Devo. He at this point he had um he was Wes Anderson's go-to composer from Bottle Rocket through Life Aquatic. Mark Mothersbaugh scored every Wes Anderson film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I
0: think uh Mark Mark Mothersbaugh is kind of like he's the secret sauce. Like his uh his scores are really that you kind of don't notice that they're there but I think it's something that makes this movie and and Royal Tenenbaums and I almost kind of wanted to do Tenenbaums with you. It was a hard choice. But uh yeah, I think it makes those two movies like something really special.
2: Yeah, and I think with Life Aquatic, I think he gets a little bit more center stage mm-hmm. as a composer. Mm-hmm. So, like during the movie, so in in the Life Aquatic, he has a song called "Let Me Tell You About My Boat," which is, which is Bill Murray, um, you know, kind of giving the lay of the land, or in this case, the lay of the ship, and it's basically just Mark Mother's Ma, Mark Mother's Boss music, over you know, for like about forty-five seconds or so, uh, without any dialogue. Or with very minimal dialogue, as they uh, go through the different compartments of the ship, and you know, I don't think Wes Anderson had given him that space in any of the previous movies.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's almost like uh, I'm just going to put a moratorium on saying Mother's Law because it's really hard. <laughs> I feel like we've given ourselves too much of a challenge with the names in this podcast.
2: I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to agree with you.
0: <laughs> so, Mark talk about mark uh yeah no i i think what's cool about the score is that it's kind of like the unofficial score to like the films that zisu makes too right so you can kind of picture it as like it's in it's the movie within the movie and that's really rad like you hear it too when you're like watching like some of the um like whatever archival footage where they're like this is how it used to be like when we made you know the life aquatic like there's something really meta about that and cool and yeah, I mean he also gets to like take center stage in that whole scene where like Bill Murray is uh, like in his dive suit and like showing off like how they they retrofitted them with like a radio so you can hear music and then he does that like Bill Murray dance.
2: That Mothers Ba piece for that, it's called Ping Island. Yes. And it's um and it's like the most Devo thing that I've heard <laughs> Mothers Ba do for Wes Anderson. You know, it's like that little Casio like keyboard little ditty with like the little, with that like really cheap drum beat behind it.
0: It's, you know what? That's such an important point that I've never thought about is that it's kind of cheap. Like it's kind of cheap and kind of tinny and like there isn't a lot to it. And it's a little reflective of like how ramshackle like the Zisu crew is too, right? Like because that's kind of their whole storyline is that like they've become this like, uh, you know, sort of down on their luck expedition. And there's something kind of nice about that that I've never like thought about that symmetry, but that's cool. They're definitely not like Jeff Goldblum's like, you know, really expensive sea dive operation, Operation Hennessy.
2: Yeah, and then they bring that piece back when he's dueling with the pirates.
0: Mm-hmm. but
2: but instead of with the cheap casio like it's a full like blown orchestra
0: <laughs> right because it's like this yeah blowout fight yeah i it's a really it's a really good score it is so maybe it's not underrated but like it should definitely be rated that scene on the island too like talk about a stacked cast for this movie the cast for this movie is obviously incredible but um I remember in, like, the early 2000s after this came out, like, do you remember the scene where Jeff Goldblum is with the Pirates and he's wearing this, like, ringer shirt from the 70s that says, I'm a pepper? It's like a Dr. Pepper shirt. Nobody that sounds about that. right. Yeah. Like, I, I just
2: remember hitting the dog with the newspaper.
0: <laughs> I mean, he's an asshole in this movie, right? But he's also this, like, perfectly Jeff Goldblum type of asshole. So it's entertaining. But yeah, he's wearing this like Dr. Pepper shirt that I remember like trying endlessly to thrift in the 2000s, like i going to find a shirt. But I never did, sadly. Never made it. If anyone out there knows where to find that shirt, um, yeah, hit me up because I need it still, even though I'm an adult.
2: <laughs> so if you can get those shoes for Nicole or the Pepper shirt. Right, Actually, I
0: did this podcast so that I could ask people listening if they have um, either those shoes or that shirt. So this is really just about this is a wardrobe. It's a wardrobe crisis, really.
2: This is what the pandemic is doing to Nicole.
0: I know. I need some retail therapy. You just hook me up with your shirts and shoes. Um, <laughs> like I, I. I think yeah, this so, is the, the only Devo song that's ever been on a Wes Anderson soundtrack, right? Like, even though he's worked with Mark.
2: Right. So, Devo's on the soundtrack. It's the first time Devo is on a Wes Anderson film soundtrack, even though Mark Mothersbaugh is the composer of the first four Wes Anderson films.
0: Yeah. And so, again, kind of like Bowie. I don't know what your impressions of Devo were as a kid, but when I was a kid, I had an older sister. And when I say older, I mean she was 12 years older than me. So her uh, version of like ideal babysitting was, I'm going to make you Kraft mac and cheese and then we're going to watch MTV for a super long time and you're going to be exposed to things that you probably shouldn't be exposed to because you're four. (laughs) So my first memory of Devo is like the, you know, weird guys in the plastic hats, with that song about whipping people, and there's a lady in her bra, and I probably shouldn't be seeing this. (laughs) Like, that was like my impression of Devo for a super long time. Like, Devo, like, they're just, I don't know, an 80s band. Right? Um, And I think this film is what made me listen to We Are Not Men for the first time, which is such a killer album.
2: I'm trying to think of my first memories of Devo. I mean, obviously, there's the Whippet video, which is iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Super Chunk did a cover of, like, Girl You Want.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, and Nirvana also covers Turnaround on Incesticide.
0: So, there's a, a lot of Nirvana in this podcast that I did not expect to crop up. Uh,
2: like, I think I totally forgot about the Devo cover until we, <laughs> we started talking about them, but... Yeah, so I think I knew that they were a little bit more than just the Whippet song because, you know, like Nirvana's covering them and then Superchunk's covering them and I'm a, I'm a pretty big Superchunk fan. But I don't think it was until, like, later that, like, I really started diving more into their actual music. Side note, Mark Mothersbaugh also composed the Rugrats theme, so I did know that. What? Uh-huh.
0: What? Am I in the last yep. person to know this information? That's amazing.
2: So there's like plenty of reasons where I was like, okay, they're more than just the Whippet Band.
0: Well, okay, first of all, you were very sophisticated in 2004. I feel like I was, I don't know, some kind of fetus in 2004, like waking up for the first time. Oh my god, music! Hmm. The internet was young, Ryan. Like I didn't know all of these things.
2: Whatever, you <laughs> saw Iggy Pop in 2003. That makes up for a know, lot. No,
0: I still, like it was a, pl- it was a process of discovery right like I lime wire and that's it I, I feel like um, the, Devo being in this movie was a turning point for me and understanding that Devo was not just like a cheesy 80s band right because again like it's in 2004 like a lot of what I had going for me in terms of like musical knowledge about acts that were older than that Um, just kind of came from like weird childhood dispositions, right? Like Bowie was like the dude in Labyrinth with the giant codpiece and Devo had the plastic hat. So this like, I think soundtracks are a really great way to discover deeper into things. You know, like Tarantino is great at this too, right? Where like he'll always throw in like a song by a band that is so catchy and amazing. You're kind of like kicking yourself or have never heard it before. But, like, that's kind of what this song is for me, right? Like, Gut Feeling is just an ass-kicker of a song. It's such a good song. And that whole album is obviously, like, genius.
2: Yeah, I didn't realize that Bowie had worked with them.
0: Bowie and Eno produced We Are Not Men. so, you know, it's kind of, again, like, that influence thing where I, I, I always have to wonder, like, is it intentional? Like, did Wes do this on purpose? where he knew like all of these things are kind of like connected. I don't know. I'm going to get like way too deep now. Like I'm going to make this like a book club or like a movie criticism club where I'm talking about like how, uh, how much of this is premeditated in the filmmaking, but it's cool. That's what,
2: that's what this podcast is for.
0: Yeah, I know it's for me to like ruminate on like, but what if,
2: (laughs) because I'm about to bring up the soundtrack supervisor.
0: Bring Randall Poster, supervisor, hit me with that soundtrack supervisor. I hope it has to do with Rugrats. Also,
2: um, no, but this will blow your. I, I'm hoping this will blow your mind a little bit. So, Randall Poster um, is Wes Anderson's kind of go-to soundtrack supervisor. <laughs> Randall Poster has been working with Wes ever since Rushmore, and I feel like he is the one. Like, I'm sure Wes has. A, I mean, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure Wes has input on the soundtrack but I think I think Randall is kind of there to help kind of fill in some of the gaps. I don't know if the Devo selection was a Randall idea, but um, if you look at other movies that Randall has worked on, he seems to kind of have a knack for killer soundtracks. So it makes sense why they get along. Randall Posters' first soundtrack was Kids. Wow. He's done a ton of other soundtracks that I love even if they're for movies that aren't so great. So he did the Life Less Ordinary soundtrack. I shot Andy Warhol. Um, and the list goes on.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I guess we should give more props to the music supervisor, right? Because it's clear that even if Anderson had the vision of, all right, I really want, like, core to this. I want there to be um, this thread of, like, Bowie cover songs by So George, right? You're still going to have to fill that in. You're going to have to bolster it by all of these other um, amazing tracks. Um, the the other thing that's really interesting about this soundtrack, in terms of like the Wes Anderson soundtrack canon, there are no stones. There's no Rolling Stones on this soundtrack.
2: Yep, this is the first one to not have a Stone song.
0: So it's kind of like uh, you can't have like too many Titans <laughs> in one arena. <laughs> I feel like that's why like the stones were kind of like left out. It's like too strong, too much.
2: Or your budget can't afford both Bowie and the stones.
0: <laughs> or it broke the budget. That is because also possible. I think, possible. <laughs> I,
2: I think uh, my friend told me that for Rushmore, um, Wes Anderson wanted all kink songs, but because they couldn't afford it in the budget, that's why you have like creation, which kind of sounds like the Kinks but isn't the Kinks. <sighs>
0: That makes complete sense. And now I'm picturing a version of Rushmore with nothing but kink songs, which would be rad.
2: So that's why you get Randall Poster. You're like, I need stuff that sounds like this. Go find it
0: yeah i mean you know as you said at the top i work in advertising so i know this game i know this game of like well what we really want is a rage against the machine song for this commercial but we know we can't afford to license that so can you find something for us that's how it usually goes down
2: Uh, and you pull out the judgment night soundtrack and you're like which one of these do you want
0: (laughs) And usually it's like it's not a great result, but yeah, I mean it helps to have like some budget to put towards this, obviously, because there there are some things in here that are still some pretty amazing polls, right? Like the zombies are on the soundtrack, which they get used in film and television a lot these days. Like, yeah, I feel but like nobody
2: you know, knows who they are.
0: Nobody knows who they are, but I think that's part of why they get used is because if you want like. Uh, a kind of like a throwback 60s, but really like emotionally affecting track. Like maybe pick something from the zombies because people won't know it immediately, like enough to have like preconceived notions about it, but they're gonna like it. They're really good at being like emotionally effective. Like the scene where Owen Wilson's character Ned dies and he gets buried at sea, that's where this song plays. Uh, and it's sad, it's so sad. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be sad and that's obvious but man it's kind of hard to watch the movie after that right is it just yeah
2: that that song definitely adds to i mean adds to the sadness right
0: the way i feel inside is is just such a melancholy song anyway and then you layer that on top of this moment and yeah it is sad yeah, so it, it's sad because it's like, oh, Owen Wilson's character is like this uncomplicated good guy, and he's got no ego, and he's in love, and even though they foreshadowed it like 20 million times in the movie, like it's still a bummer when he dies.
2: Yeah, it's such a gut punch because it happens so abruptly.
0: Yeah, it really does happen abruptly and in kind of like um, in the in a way that you don't necessarily expect it to happen, right? Like, it's just, yeah, it's a it's a sad moment and it's also one of i think one of the most emotionally effective moments in all of wes anderson's movies you know how he has this thing where like there's kind of a detachment um in some of his movies like the dialogue is sometimes kind of like stilted and removed but like not this like this is really legitimately very sad
2: (laughs) yeah and 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 we could possibly attribute that to Noah Baumbach's involvement in the film. He is Wes Anderson's co-writer for this movie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he tends to make just very sad things in general.
0: <laughs> he is a sad bastard, yeah. But but you know what? Like his involvement, I think you're right, is what sets it apart for me. Is that I feel things uh, in this movie that I don't necessarily feel in other Wes Anderson films where they're kind of keeping you like at arm's length so you're drawn into the world like the aesthetics of the world of like I don't know even like Tenenbaums for example like you you get into the world but you don't necessarily get into the emotions or the motivations of the characters and I feel like this movie is really different in that way it really does like hit the high notes in terms of emotion the the song that's not on this movie it's a segue to this Sticker Rose is not on the soundtrack.
2: And we're not going to try to pronounce that song.
0: No, we're not because there's too many names. <laughs> and now doing Icelandic is just it's too much to ask of us in this podcast. We're not doing it.
2: I guess we don't really need to say that it's a gorgeous song because that is
0: is—that
2: is their MO.
0: Yes, that's kind of their whole uh, wheelhouse is we make beautiful things that you want to watch the stars too.
2: But this is in 2004, so they're still fairly new on the scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they've made quite the entrance into the music world, but I think they were still kind of a risky thing to use in, in movies in 2004. Like, the first memory I have of Sigarose after after this movie is, like, the trailer for Slumdog Millionaire. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And now their music is everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's be- I mean, Jonesy and Sigur Rose have just kind of like uh, proceeded on this really like ubiquitous path. And maybe it's because like when you're singing something in Icelandic, which is this like weird, foreign, not to offend anyone, Icelandic, but it, to <laughs> like an English speaker's ear, it really is pretty incom- incomprehensible. So you can put it as uh, the soundtrack, as the background music to something, and it doesn't have to speak to the scene in terms of the lyrics. It's just kind of there as a mood. It's a mood.
2: So Yonzi sings in what's called uh, Hoplandic, and according to Wikipedia, it is almost like gibberish. Like it's almost like he's scatting.
0: <sighs> See, this is this is why this podcast is so amazing. So it's scatting. But in Icelandic. Is that right? Yeah, like
2: it's it's like a made up language.
0: So it's exactly that's a, it's a made up language. It means nothing even if you're Icelandic. Is that what this is saying?
2: Um it's probably like a little bit more complicated than that, but but yes.
0: <laughs> no, let's flatten it to the least complicated thing that we can
2: <laughs> according to Wikipedia, it's ju- it's just like scanning.
0: So it's like, scooby-doo, bop-bop, but in like, Icelandic and much nicer. Yeah,
2: but like really slowed down and like in falsetto.
0: <laughs> it's the most ridiculous fact point. <laughs> I mean, good for them, you know? they Good for them. I guess that's what allows them to really focus on like the lush beauty of all of their arrangements, right? Like they're not really worried about what the lyrics say. It's just kind of like a flow.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's also bowing his guitar. So are you really that surprised?
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. You're right. I'm not. This is not a shocker. Interesting, but yeah, like it's. It's. I wonder why this song is not on the soundtrack. Can we speculate on that for a second? Because it comes at like this climactic scene where they're they're in the sub and they found the jaguar shark. I mean, it's 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 not like it's a a subtle element. Like it's a big deal.
2: I think it's because it doesn't fit with the rest of the song. So you have all these. Bowie-related songs, and then you have a Siguro song from, like, year 2000 and onward.
0: Mm. So you think in terms of, like, uh, not fitting with the the kind of the genre, it's, like, outside of the genre, kind of, or the the timing? Yeah. I think that's the most plausible theory, although it's weird for me to imagine any world where, like, Wes Anderson is making a choice for the sake of being (laughs) commercial. (laughs) <laughs> especially in 2004 like all of this stuff was still pretty outside of like the realm of what was I don't know pop in and really big um but that does make sense like I guess if you're crafting a soundtrack you want people to listen to it consecutively you're still buying cds You don't want people, like, skipping it. It's interesting, though. It's interesting to think about, like, the motivation behind that. And for all I know, and I don't remember this because it's been a while since I've listened to this song in full. But, um, whatever the song is titled, I can't pronounce it because it's gibberish. Um, (laughs) that could be, like, 12 minutes long for all I know. So it might be a really long song, too. Maybe that factors into, like, the, the length, the runtime.
2: Oh, that's also possible. Like if, if the soundtrack is already pretty long yeah, and that song would put it over 70 minutes, then it becomes a double disc and you can't have that.
0: Yeah. This this is like going back to a, uh, it's like a time capsule to a different time with different considerations. <laughs> like, oh, we can't have like an unlimited amount of music. So it's just like going on streaming
2: i'm trying to see how long the song is it could be like 12 minutes it's off that first album
0: i feel like there's got to be some it's probably like it's not like it's getting radio play so i bet it's way long i bet it's long if it's under four minutes i'm gonna be real surprised
2: yeah i remember that album being pretty long in general
0: well, and again, like we talked about Limewire. Like I'm pretty sure that I illegally downloaded this album and for all I know, like it could be any I don't even know if I ever listened to like the right album. The right track list.
2: <laughs> I'm I'm getting you the uh Yeah, uh it's six minutes and forty five seconds.
0: Oh, six minutes forty five seconds. We should have taken bets. We should have guessed how long it was gonna be, but at this valley, it's my theory that it's just too long.
2: Yeah, that album only has one song. <laughs> well, it has two songs under five minutes.
0: Right. because But like- one
2: of them is called <laughs> Intro.
0: <laughs> I die. Intro. That's how I remember it being. It's like a four track album, but it's like three hours long. <laughs> Exaggerating, but it's yeah, that's that's it. But, you know, the thing, though, that I kind of it's sort of a, a, a sad thing that it's not on the album, right, because I do feel like it it really does encapsulate this kind of otherworldly mood that the rest of the movie sets up. And I think what's interesting about using Bowie songs like primarily from Ziggy Stardust, right, it's all these kind of ruminations about like an alien exploring an alien place. And that's kind of what the ocean is, too. Like, there's this parallel between, like, we haven't really explored this. It's all new. It's all undiscovered. It's like trying to get to, like, the unknowable. And there's something super unknowable about this song because it's um, in a made-up language.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A made-up language that you just learned about today.
0: What I just learned existed this very day. I was today years old when I learned about Hoplandic.
2: Well, I don't know. So many people I, I'm sure are hiring Randall Poster at this point to have them have them uh, beef up their soundtracks. And I'm sure he's like, I'm there's, there's a lot more Sigur where that came from.
0: <laughs> well, actually, there's only 10 songs, but they're all really long. So
2: so if you so if you hear a Sigur roast song in The Hangover 4, <laughs> that's probably Randall Poster's doing
0: yeah I and I love that like I love that you bring him up because I feel like um all of Wes Anderson's soundtracks they're very carefully curated obviously um his movies are carefully curated like within an inch of their life um which is what people love about them right like they're just very like carefully executed everything is kind of like perfect and symmetrical this feels like that it just feels like something that um it's like almost too good to even like really exist like that's how I have always felt about these songs is that they're just um like if I were to make something or had like the means to be Randall poster to make a movie like it would probably look something like this I don't know like um I, I also like uh I think it was it was maybe like eight years ago I went to Monaco uh, Monaco in France, and now it sounds. Now that I am saying it out loud, it sounds like I am like I went to Monaco. <laughs> I was a poor person in Monaco. Like, let's just put that out there to be clear. <laughs> like, I was not in Monte Carlo, like um, putting it all on black and like gambling in a Lamborghini. Like, I was just there on vacation. I happened to be there. Uh, our, my friends and I, like, we wandered into Monte Carlo, and in Monte Carlo they have an oceanographic museum. Uh, have you ever heard of the Oceanographic Museum in Monte Carlo, or is this like a super obscure thing?
2: Um, I haven't heard of it, but I also know very little about Monte Carlo.
0: <laughs> and again, now I feel like I'm being a pretentious asshole. Like in Monte Carlo, they have an Oceanographic Museum. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> no, no, continue, please continue.
0: Uh, But yes, they have this oceanographic museum. It's like in this turn of the century, like crazy building, like perched on a cliff in like pristine Monte Carlo. You go inside and it's got all of this stuff, um, some of which is from Jacques Cousteau, who inspired so much of this movie, right? So they have like his yellow submarine that looks very much like the real life version of the yellow submarine in this film. Um, they have this cabinet of natural curiosities with all of these, you know, kind of, like, Victorian, like, pickled jars of, like, sea creatures, bones of whales hanging from the ceiling. And it's all, like, very grand. It's a lot like the set pieces in Life Aquatic where you're, you know, you're walking through these, like, you know, French halls and chandeliers. It's all like that, right? Um and yeah, like it just, um, again, kind of felt like it emerged out of a dream because when we traveled, we didn't even really know it was there. We just kind of like stumbled on it. Um, and it was the same thing where it's like, wow, I wonder if Wes Anderson has seen this. <laughs> and this like influenced like all of these like weird kind of European settings. You don't really know where they are. Like they might be Spain, they might be France. You have no idea where they are. I, I think that's what makes the movie so compelling to go back to is that it's it really does create like another place with enough familiar elements where you're like, Oh yeah, I, I, I relate to that.
2: So thank you, Nicole, for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. This has been, this has been really fun. This has been uh, nice to, to reminisce about uh, things that I don't get to uh, talk about anymore. So thank you. It's been fun.
2: Nicole is private on Instagram, but, um, if you're cool enough, maybe she'll let you follow her at slallapalooza.
0: Yeah, if you have that I'm a pepper shirt or any of the Life Aquatic Adidas shoes, then yeah, DM me.
2: Let's get you and Brandis on an episode. That would be a lot of fun.
0: Yes, please. Let's do that. I want to tag team something with her because, um, yeah, we love shit talking each other. It's fun.
2: If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. Please leave us a, a review. Uh, thank you for listening again. And hopefully we'll see you at the next episode.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Hey, if you want to be featured on our show, you can do an intro for us. Just go to realasianpodcast.com slash intro and record your intro, and we'll add it to the beginning of our show so you can hear your own voice.